Romans chapter 6, verse 15 is where we're picking up today. Hey, if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand because Romans is, is sort of a, a difficult book. It's not an easy book. And uh, you really want a Bible in front of you because uh, it, it could get a bit boring. And, and, you know, so just grab a Bible. Hey, raise your hand. Um, so we'd love to give you one and make sure you get one. On, on before, you can buy one in the bookstore. I think we have some to give you or just grab one and when you come in in the back. It's really important everybody has a Bible in their hands. Hey, um, so before chapter 6, Paul had the joyful opportunity to explain that we are saved by faith through the grace of God. It's a gift of God. And, and there in chapter 5, he says, Now, as believers who have accepted the work of Jesus Christ by faith, we now have access positionally, continually in the presence of God. We now stand positionally, constantly in the grace of God. Hebrews 4 says we can boldly come into the throne of grace, receive mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. That we as believers are in Christ and can never be out of Christ. We're in him. We're a part of him. He's a part of us. And it's this, this amazing thing. And he, he comes to the end of Romans 5 and says, Hey, where sin abounds, God grace abounds more. And so you've got to understand that these people have been under the law. They've been held by legalism, by fear and intimidation. They've been not doing stuff and doing stuff because they were afraid of the condemnation. We think of that story where Achan, on the Sabbath, picked up a few sticks to throw them in the fire. And they said, foul, you worked on the Sabbath. And, and sure enough, they said, God said, you broke the Sabbath. And they stoned him to death over picking up some sticks. So there's a heavy hand of legalism, the law brought. And so people were in line. People were not doing and doing because the law was an oppressor to them. Sort of like communism or something, you know, there's a heavy hand. And Paul now is a joyful explanation as he did in 5, 6, chapter 7, again in chapter 8. And, and he's going to say, guys, the law's dead to us. We're free from the law. We no longer have condemnation in Christ. There is no law to condemn us. You're in Christ and you always have access and God's mercy and grace is always gonna be there for you in whatever need you're in. And, and, and you know what? Whatever sins you have, no matter how big those sins, deep those sins, numerous those sins, God's grace is gonna abound more. Now, you, you can imagine the elation of the people at this gospel message. But at the same time, we're all human. <laughs> and what is our natural tendency when we're given liberty and freedom? To quickly misuse it. I, I know there's been several families through the years who have come out of cults are certain legalistic sects, shepherding doctrine where they're under control of a church or a leader or, or whatever. And, and, and they, you know, one particular group, we had a number of people come and, and you know, they were always told they, you know, girls always had to wear dresses and no makeup and, you know, they could never watch TV or go to movies and, you know, all of these lists of things. You couldn't have facial hair. I never would have made it in that place. And, uh, and, and when they came out of that cult, they finally realized this, uh, this is not right. They come to Calvary Chapel, they hear about God's grace. You know, all the guys start growing beards. All the girls run out and get pants and makeup. And, and then they realize, you know, some of these guys had been in this thing for 20 years, 15 years. They realize, man, I've got 20 years of movies to catch up on. And, you know, every night they're watching movies till three in the morning. It's like, oh, I'm tired all the time. Ever since I started coming to Calvary, I'm tired all the time. And, you know, kids are doing horrible in school. Well, it might be that you start watching movies at four o'clock and don't stop till three o'clock in the morning. But, you know, it was just like, blah, you know, their flesh and just, 
And they're like, man, maybe I should go back to legalism because my, I'm just out of control. I, I, you know, there's no control. So, you know, no, it's not about going back under legalism. It's about answering the right question. Why did you do what you did before and why did you not do what you were not doing before? You see, the legalism made you do a lot of the right things and not do a lot of the wrong things, but your motive was horrible. It wasn't in worship. It wasn't in a response to grace. It was out of a fear of a heavy hand of condemnation, and, and nobody can live under that permanently for a long time. And you're set free from that. So what now? Do the right things. Don't do the wrong things, but why? See, that's the important thing. You guys are here at church today, and why you're here at church today is as important as being here at church today. I mean, if you're here at church today because, well, I don't want God to blackball me out of heaven. You know, I, I, I don't want my wife to be mad at me. I, I just wanted my kids to hear about God for a few years, and once they hear it, I'm out of here. You know, I didn't meet that nice of people at the bar. I thought I'd meet a few nicer people here at church. I mean, there's a lot of reasons people might come to church. Hopefully, you're here at church because God loves his church. (laughs) Christ died for the church. When you become a born-again believer, you are immediately a part of the body of Christ, the church. 1 Corinthians 12 says immediately, one's a hand, one's a foot, one's an ear. There's no probationary period. Whether you're one day in the Lord or 50 years in the Lord, you are all equally as important. Your presence here, your, your voice and song, your fellowship, your insights, whatever you participate in, ushering, teaching, Sunday school, worship, whatever you do, everybody's participation is essential. And without one hand, that's <laughs> hard. Or lose a finger, that's hard. Or lose an eye, that's hard. We are all a part of the body of Christ and we come to understand God created the church equally as creating born-again believers. That that nobody is to be the lone ranger Christian. I don't need the church. There are a bunch of hypocrites down there and so forth and so on. No. Paul says in Hebrews 10, don't forsake the gathering together of the brethren, especially as you see the day of the Lord drawing near. All the way through the scripture, God created the church. He builds the church. God's given to the church, pastors and teachers and prophets and evangelists, to build up the church. Every part doing its share causes the growth in everybody else. Now, now hopefully it's, it's that. It's, I'm, I'm here to obey God. I'm here to grow in the Lord. I, I'm here because I need it. I need to hear the message. I need the fellowship. I need the accountability. I need the encouragement. I just like having some cool friends. I mean, there's a lot of good reasons why we're here. And so Paul immediately realized, I just told these guys, where sin abounds, grace abounds more. I know their knee-jerk reaction is, woohoo, let's go send it up so God can give us more grace. That's sort of a foolish, immature reaction, but maybe for a moment or an hour, a few days or a few weeks, a few months, people sort of wrestle through. Why am I stopping that and why am I starting that? And so last time we were together, we looked at the first 14 verses. And and Paul there in chapter 6, verse 1, he asked a question, what shall we say then about this grace stuff, not being under the law anymore? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? He answers it quickly in verse 2. Certainly not. And then he explains why. Look in verse 3. Do you not know? Okay. Why would you not sin? Why would you keep from sinning? Because, he says here, basically in these next verses, you're born again. You're a new creature in Christ. The old man is dead. That old sinful nature is taken away. And, and you're a new creature. Guys, let me tell you something here. This isn't a philosophy. This isn't a simple theology. This isn't a nice utopian concept. We all believe in it, even though it's not true. Let's all just believe on it. 
This is a real thing. And if you've been born again, you know this is real. You know in a moment the blinders came off. You begin to see the world through God's point of view, a spiritual eyes. You, you immediately sense God's spirit coming into your life and, and, the, and the cleansing you felt, the, the healing, the forgiveness and the joy to worship God and read the Bible and tell everybody you know about Jesus. You're a new creature in Christ. It's a real thing that happened. It wasn't a brainwashing. It wasn't some unreal thing that we want to believe real when a person is changed by the power of God's spirit, the creator of the heavens and the earth comes and lives in their hearts and makes our life his holy habitation. It's a real powerful thing. And Paul, in essence, says, how can you continue in sin? Now, make a note here in verse one. The word sin is in the present subjunctive, which really Paul is asking the question here, Do you live in a habitual lifestyle of sin? That's what he's saying. Well, where I sin, grace abounds more. And he asked the questions, well, what do we do with this grace stuff? Shall I live in a lifestyle of sin? Certainly not. Why? Because we're born again creatures. We're, We're now made to live in obedience to Christ, no longer in the world, but apart from the world, living in a newness of life, just as Jesus raised from the dead, so you also have raised from the dead to a new life. Now, it appears in verse 15, where we start today, that Paul is re-asking the same question he asked in verse 1. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? He answers it the same way. Certainly not. Now, note the word sin here. This is in the aorist subjunctive. Now, I I do just sort of want to put a footnote here. Most of the time when you're reading through the Bible, what you see in your translation, whether it's English or Spanish or German or or whatever, is is what it says. But sometimes you look at stuff and like this, you're going... Is Paul being redundant? Is he asking the same question? Why did he just, you know, why would he do this again? It sort of jumps out to you. There's probably something more going on here than I can see in the English. And so, therefore, we've got to be students of the word and go back to the original language here, which is Greek. And we discover in the Greek that in verse 1, Paul is asking their Shall we continue in sin, a present subjunctive, referring to a lifestyle of sin? But now we come to verse 15 and we see the word sin is in the aorist subjunctive saying a single sin. So no, I'm not talking about living in a lifestyle. I'm not talking about getting drunk every Friday night. I'm just talking about getting drunk on New Year's Eve. You know, I've got it figured out. What I'm going to do is this. Plan the big party, get drunk, and the next morning, God, forgive me, grace, grace, Lord. Where my sin abounds, grace abounds more. You know, it's not the best thing, but it's only once a year. You know, it's not like I'm going to continue in an affair, but you know, when I go on the business trip over to such and such a country, all the other guys I go with, they all take in prostitutes. And, you know, it's not like I'm going to do it all the time. But on that once a year business trip, I just sort of want to leave my Christianity at home and woo, live and let live for, you know, five days and come back and repent and get things going again. So can I, can I have these isolated moments of sin? Now, I, I want to say this. The Bible's very clear that our lives compared to Christ, we are always sinning okay we're, we're never without sin we're never at the point where i can say i have an announcement it's been 365 days since my last sin it's been a really good year you know you can't even say it this last month has been wonderful man I, this last week no sin i mean it's never going to be the fact until we're in our new bodies with the lord you know, you know, comparing ourselves to 
before we came to Christ 20 years ago, and boy, I'll tell you, back before I knew Christ, man, and look at me today, it's a big difference, and that's wonderful. And that's the way it should be. But we're never gonna be sinless, only when we're in our new bodies. But this is talking again about a conscious sin. I I know this is wrong, but I know God will forgive me, so I'm gonna go ahead and do it. And this is the question that he's asking. Shall I therefore, having uh, technical issues here, um, shall I have single acts of sin, since I'm not under the law but under grace, and Paul answers in the same way, certainly not. And notice back in verse 3, he said, do you not know? He does the same thing now in verse 16. Do you not know? In the first time in verse 3, he said, do you not know? He said, we're born again, we're new creatures in Christ. We're now raised from the dead by the glory of the Father to live in a newness of life. Well, what about the single acts of sin? Well, he says in verse 16, don't you know? That to whom you present yourself slaves to obey, you are that one slave whom you obey. Whether sin leading to death or obedience leading to righteousness. Now, you know, immediately we start talking slavery. I I get very uncomfortable about this. And you you know, I've traveled around the world and spoke. And every country has experienced slavery. And it's very gross to them, very rude, very crude, very uncomfortable to bring up the failures of of the past. And so it's offensive here. And you know what? Skip down to verse 19 real quick. Paul realized it was offensive. (laughs) And he says, hey, I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. He said, you know, I understand. And of course, Paul was writing to the church in Rome. The Roman Empire had 60 million slaves in it at this time. No doubt a a huge percentage of the people reading this were slaves at the moment, not happily so. So he, he understood this is brash, this is rude, this is sort of crude and in your face analogy. But he says, I really need to get your attention. So I'm gonna be a little abrasive using this analogy, but you know, I'm consciously doing it. And so just bear with me if you would. And and notice what he says here. To the one you give yourself to, you're a slave to that thing. And if you give yourself over to a sin, you're going to eventually be enslaved by that sin. But you say it's, it's one time. Guys, it's, it's not the nature of sin. Sin will never be a one-time thing. It'll be a two-time thing, and then a three-time thing, and then a four-time thing, and it used to be a one-year thing, and now it's a six-month thing, and now it's a quarterly thing, and now it's a one-month thing, and now it's, I can't stop it. I'm trying to turn it off, and I can't turn it off. It, it's overwhelming me. It's overpowered me, and I, I don't really know what to do. I'm enslaved to this thing. And then what does he say? It brings forth death. Now, let me explain the biblical term for death. We go all the way back to the book of Genesis. Remember God said to Adam and Eve, if you were to eat of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the moment you eat of that fruit, you shall die. Well, as the story plays out, they did eat of that fruit. Did they kill over dead under that tree? No, they didn't. Well, what happened? God wasn't referring to physical death. On that very day, it was their last walk with God in the cool of the evening. It was their last day living in the Garden of Eden. They were separated from God. You know, we all, all human beings are going to live eternally. One group of people that have not been born again are going to live eternally separated from the presence of God. You could go to the most wicked spot on planet Earth right now and the presence of God is still thick. 
They can see the amazing hand of God in every sunrise and every sunset and every smile of every baby. But the Bible also tells us that God's spirit is thick in the world, convicting every man of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, calling their name, drawing them to himself. But hell is going to be a place there is absolutely zero presence of God, and that is what's going to make hell, hell. For us who have become born-again believers, we're going to be in heaven in the very presence of God. Physically, literally, all the time, just enjoying his glory. That's what's going to make heaven, heaven. Not the streets of gold and the good food and all that. It's just the presence of God. And he is saying here, Christians, listen to me. If you give yourself over to a single act of sin, there's going to be another single act and another single act. And all of a sudden, you no longer have a single act. You have a whole row of those things. And it's going to bring you under the slavery to that thing. And then it's going to bring forth death. As a Christian, you don't have a relationship with God like you once had. All of a sudden, the fires cease burning. You used to have this devotional heart and oh I just want to worship God I can't worship anymore it's like the songs have no stirring in my heart they have no meaning in my mind I have no ability to want to bend my knee or lift my hands I go to the word and I I can't understand even a sentence of it God's not speaking to me I, I go to prayer and it's like the ceiling is made of iron and I have no faith It's a serious issue that even as born-again believers, we can lose that place of fellowship with God. Go read the seven letters to the seven churches in the first couple of chapters, first three chapters of the book of Revelation, and you'll get an idea of how bad off believers can get. And this is what he is saying. Guys, the reason you were born again is to get out of the life that you once had, to get into a new life with Christ, to have this new born again life. I mean, imagine if you decide, you're a young couple, you decide to have a baby. You're all excited about the baby and, you know, you're watching your wife. She's getting bigger and bigger and the day's coming and finally the baby comes into the world and, oh, you're excited. Look at this baby and this wonderful, the baby... And about three weeks into this baby thing, you're like looking at each other going, have you got any sleep? I haven't got any sleep. That kid is screaming or pooping or throwing up and ruining my shirt, ruining the carpet. I'm pretty well done with this baby thing. How about you? I'm over it. (laughs) Go knock on your neighbor's door. Hey, got a present for you. Here's the baby. See you later. Boy. Sure, glad we don't have that baby thing in our life anymore. I mean, is that really going to happen? I mean, you have this baby in your life because you want this fellowship, this relationship, this growth, this maturity, to see the baby start crawling and walking and talking and grow into an adult and, and the joys and the sorrows and the difficulties and the, and the high points. And all of that together, you, you understood it before you ever thought about a baby. In the same way, when we said, I want out of darkness into his marvelous light, I want the claws of Satan out of me and to come into the loving arms of Jesus. It it, it wasn't for a week or two. It it, it wasn't an idea that's give it a try. (laughs) It was a lifetime commitment. Whatever might come. And here he's simply saying, guys, on a very practically daily level, understand the nature of man. Understand the nature of sin. Sin is Sin is a real thing, guys. We can't see the wind, but it's a real thing, right? You can't see love or hate or prejudice, but they're very real things. And if you're, you're a person with hate in your heart, it, it begins to destroy all relationships. It manifests. You, you, you were angry every once in a while, and now you just wake up angry, and you're angry when you go to bed. I'm upset about everything and everybody and just get away from me. 
You, you, you become this hateful, unloving, unkind, unforgiving person. And it started with this invisible thing of anger and hate, and it's a real thing. Guys, sin is not some philosophical, theological concept that we're making up and saying, okay, well, here at this group, this is what we call sin. Now, these people over here, they have their own situational ethics, and they got their own morals, and that's what they decide sin is. Guys, sin is sin because it's sin. (laughs) Okay? You say, well, in my moral world, adultery is not a sin. Okay? Go commit adultery and see if sin, whether you recognize it as sin or not, is a damaging thing to you and your wife and your family. Go home and tell your wife, hey, you know what? I've decided adultery is no longer a sin. I'm going to start having a few affairs here and there and just live with it. I'm not going to let you put your Judeo-Christian ethic on me and you know, make me feel guilty about it because I don't because it's no longer a sin. You're going to find it's a real thing. It's not a concept. It's a very real thing. And the manifestations of that is going to grieve people, hurt people. It's a very real thing. All sin is a very real thing. And this is what he's saying. It's not some isolated event that has no life of its own. No. When you go into that one sin, you open that door. That door is open, guys. And you're going to see the light of it and hear the sound of it and the smell of it. And you may even try to shut that door and, and it's not going to be that easy. You've opened a door. You've crossed the line. And it's going to be very difficult to get back to that place where that thing is no longer a struggle, an issue, a temptation, a hardship in your life. And this is what he's saying here is understand that this sin is going to bring to slavery and to death. On the other side, obedience leads to what? Righteousness. Now, let's say you planted a tree last week. And you decided, you know what? I planted an orange tree. But now that I really think about it, I want an apricot tree. Now, how hard is it going to be to go out there and pull out that tree you planted last week? It's going to be a little effort, but it's not going to be that hard, is it? But now let's say that orange tree's been there 15 years. And you decide to pull it up. It's a whole other issue, isn't it? I mean, you may even have to have professionals come. (laughs) There's going to be a lot of ground ripped up. There's going to be a lot of roots. And you just can't go over and yank it out with your arm. See, in the same way, understand that that little sin led to another little sin, to another little sin, and a year goes by, two years go by, three years go by. It's something that the roots are growing deep and becoming more and more entrenched. On the other side, it's the same with righteousness. It's the same with obedience. I've been walking obediently for a week. That's great, but... 10 years, 15 years, 25 years. It's something deep in you to be obedient to God. And it's not so easy for Satan or man or anybody else to just come by and rip it up. And this is what he's saying. It's sort of the the concept, uh, if you would, of the principle of spiritual momentum. You know, you you remember that? Getting on your skateboard or a bicycle going downhill. What? I didn't want to go this fast, but I'm only halfway down. You know, there's, it's the momentum. And and that's with sin. It's like, you know, I was just wanting to keep it on a level ground, you know, so I can control it and steer it. And it's not a scary thing. But all of a sudden, you know, it went from one year to six months to every month. And all of a sudden, you're going downhill and you're like, oh, I didn't want this momentum. And this sin's taking on a life of its own and controlling me. And I don't have control. I'm out of control. And I'm going to crash, you know. Well, let me tell you, it's the same as we walk in obedience. We're going to have this life and obedience is going to lead to more obedience and it's going to lead to more fruitfulness and it's going to lead to a richer life and a more powerful life and, and all of a sudden it's going to, I'm going to be less self-seeking and more other thinking. I'm going to be more caring and less caring about myself and I'm going to be more giving and serving and, and all of a sudden 
We start bearing a little bit of fruit and God prunes us. We're bearing a lot more fruit and we're bearing more fruit and people in our lives are taking of that fruit and eating it and getting the nutrients and the refreshment from it. And this our Father is glorified that we bear much fruit. Well, on the other hand, the person had some fruit and it sort of shriveled up and now all they are is this little pokey weed. They're not that fruitful person. And so here you are. I mean, what do you, what do you want, ladies? Do you, do you want a husband that's like Jesus? Somebody who's serving and caring and loving and humble and just obedient to Christ and being fruitful. And that spills over to the children, spills over to everyone else. What about you husbands? What kind of wife do you want? Do you want somebody who's full of love and kindness and purity and care and, and, and this heart of giving and serving? What do your children want? What do you want in your parents? What, is your, what do you want in your children? And then what about the body of Christ? You know, we are what? The church. We're, what is the church? It's the body of Christ. And so we, we can see again the, the power of this thing as obedience leads to greater and greater righteousness, to a greater and greater fruitfulness. Now, notice verse 17. But God be thanked that though you were, past tense, slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. Now this is sort of an interesting verse. He's saying, guys, you once were slaves to sin. Now the word slave here, Kenneth Weiss points out, it wasn't you became a slave for a, a season, you were born a slave. So the first day of life you came into this world, you were a slave. At two years old and five years old and ten years old and fifteen years old and twenty years old, you were a slave. You had to do what your master wanted to do. You didn't have the freedom of choice. And this is how we were. The Bible tells us that we were born with a sin nature. And that we looked over and thought, I want to be forgiven. I just want the joy of just God's forgiveness flooding my life. I want to not be angry and lustful and and I, I don't want to be this self-seeking person, but I'm, I'm enslaved over here to, to sin and the devil and the spirit of this age. And, and, and over here enslaved, they can't, I can't get over to righteousness. I can't get over that forgiveness. I can't get over to that fellowship with God. And I'm under this, this slave owner that's keeping me from getting there. But when you were born again, you didn't just have life in Christ. The slavery ended. You now no longer have to obey sin, the devil, the spirit of this age. You now have the freedom to come over and to receive this fellowship with God and the forgiveness and the life that comes in Christ. And he said, when you became a born-again believer, verse 17, you obeyed from the heart, the very core of your being. And notice here, this is a little bit tricky, this last part of verse 17. That form of doctrine to which you were delivered. Now, this could be translated. It wouldn't be incorrect. If you say, I was given the doctrine, the teachings of Jesus, the gospel. It was given to me. But I don't think that's what's being said here. And some of the modern translations actually translate it that way and don't give you the option going back to the original. And that's why, again, the King James, the New King James, the New American, they're, they're more of a, what we call a literal translation. So sometimes it's not as clear, but they're just giving you word for word and you deal with it. But you look at this and it's actually saying, I believe here, is that we are the ones being poured into the form of doctrine. Not the form of doctrine being poured into us, we're being poured into it. Now, it's pointed out that this word form and delivered is most likely referring to metal that's been liquefied, poured into a mold to make an arrowhead or a hammer or whatever. 
And he's in essence saying that when we became born again believers, we were liquefied and we were poured into the mold. What is the mold? It's Jesus. That our lives are no longer our own. As he's going to say in a minute, we're now slaves of a new slave owner, God. And his plan is to give us freedom. And so, you know, I, it's sort of hard. We don't work with metals and stuff like they did at this time. So I, I like to think of more of, of concrete because we, we have a little more of a picture of that. You know, if you put up forms for concrete, what would happen if you just put up three sides of the form and you start pouring the concrete? What's going to happen? You're just going to have this blob that's worthless. It doesn't do anything, right? What do you got to do? You got to put up that four side. And when you do, you create immense amount of tension. If you've ever laid concrete, you know you've got to stake that thing and stake it and stake it and stake it and stake it to a crazy extreme. All kinds of angles. You have all the different stakes pushing up and nailing it to the form. Because when that concrete goes in, the pressure is immense. And if there is even one spot of weakness, it'll blow off one whole side of the form and and you're in serious trouble. And so we were poured into this form that is a clear form and it's, 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 it's not without its tension. It's not without its pressure. It's a very specific form. Jesus. You, you think of Jesus. And you read through the gospel, he's complicated. It's not so easy, you know. we, We see there where he's full of love and he tells the woman, you've been caught in the act of adultery, go and sin no more. And, you know, he's full of grace and kindness and healing people and forgiving people and blessing people. And and you say, I got it. God is love. That's all we need to know about him. God is love. And then you read the next passage, he's making a whip and he's turning over money changing tables and he's driving people out with a whip. He didn't do that once but twice. Hey, Pharisees, let me talk to you. You guys are a bunch of whitewashed tombs with dead men's bones. You are the sons of Satan. And everybody who listens to you and follows you are twice the sons of hell as yourself. Whoa, loving things out the door. Okay, I guess God's not love at all because that was pretty rude. Well, no, 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 he is love. I look it over here, he is love. But, but yet he made a whip and turned over tables and drove guys out of the temple and told people they're of Satan. And Can he be loving? And Can you be loving and tell people are of the devil at the same time? It's a form. There's pressure there. Yes, that's all, make, all those things make up Jesus. And all those things need to make up our lives. You see, in in reality, if I start living in sin, little sins that lead to eventually a lot of sins, can I still look like Jesus? I won't. This is the point he's making. Those sins will keep me from looking like Jesus. And I will not have the power of Jesus or the fruitfulness of Jesus or the fruit of the spirit of Jesus, kindness, goodness, gentleness, love, patience, self-control. Those things won't be there and those things aren't there. I don't look like Jesus anymore. How am I gonna bless my wife? Being like Jesus. How's my wife gonna bless me? Being like Jesus. How are we as a union gonna look? Do we look together like Jesus to our children? Do I look like Jesus at work? You know, we together as a body, we should all look like Jesus. One body, right? (laughs) The hand, the foot, the eye, the ear, we're all here. Does it look like Jesus? Well, let's go back to the Gospels. Let's read it again. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Do we look like Jesus? Some some person who's visiting here today, you come in here and you've been reading the Gospel of Matthew and, and you're here today going, Does this look like Jesus hanging out with a multitude by the Sea of Galilee? I think it does. Several years back, me and my wife Cheryl were up on a Christmas Eve and we were looking at the Christmases from around the world and they they started with the Pope and the Vatican. And there he comes with his grand poobah hat and his 
staff with gold on the end and all the gold around his neck. And I'm trying to bash on the Catholic Church. It's just if the shoe fits, wear it. But, you know, he's got, he's got more gold on than Mr. T. And, and he's trying to make it down and trying to get up to the thing. And I was just intrigued because I didn't know if he was going to die that night or not. I mean, it, it was sort of overwhelming, you know. And then he sort of mumbled some stuff and, and they did this and anointed this. And, and I'm just like, okay, let me think about this. Jesus on the cross. The Bible says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, thinking, one day I'm going to have the Vatican. Oh, this is going to be great. Boy, that hat. Oh, right, thank you. Oh, go ahead, I'm willing to die because I want to see that grand poobah hat on the Pope. And, you know, I can't wait till they have these giant cathedral I mean, this is this is this is why i did all this ministry around the sea of galilee this is why i did so much teaching that one day i'm looking at this going jesus wore no religious clothes the religious people hated jesus there's the one who had him put to death because he wasn't religious the romans at jesus death wanted his clothes it was nice clothes but it was ordinary There was nothing religious about Jesus at all. The religious people were constantly at odds with him. The next thing they went was the Greek Orthodox Church. And and there he is standing, the the priest of the church, and people are coming and they kneel down and they kiss his ring. And the next guy comes down and kneel, kiss his ring. and, And then they're filing into the cathedral there. I'm sort of shaking my head going, is that what Jesus did? Did he like have everybody kneel down and kiss his ring? Or was he serving them? Or were they... It seems a little backwards here. It didn't seem like Jesus was that kind of guy dying on the cross. One day they're going to kiss people's rings. And then they had this guy and he had this giant thing of incense. I mean, this thing must have weighed 30 pounds. Incense flowing through it. And, and, you know, it was Christmas Eve and you could tell the guy was happy that he got this job. And he was rather enthusiastic. And he comes down the aisle, about aisles like we have here, and he's swinging this thing. I mean, just, he's into it. It's Christmas Eve. Woo, man. And, I I mean, he's coming like a half an inch from people's heads. Again, I'm I'm intrigued because I'm just waiting for some guy to get laid out and blood to just, you know. But, you know, he he knew what he was doing. He was good at it. And people, woo, lean a little bit here. They were all into the flow. There There was no danger there. It just was in my mind. But again, it's like, is that what, is this, is this Jesus? Does this look like Jesus? Is this the form that we've been poured into and the boards come off and there's the form and that's the form that Jesus wanted? I think we need to ask ourselves these questions because the form of Jesus is what brings us freedom. The form of Jesus is what makes us a blessing we're a fruitful tree rather than the sticker bush. Here I'm a husband. I just poke my wife and make her bleed and poke my kids and poke, you know, I'm just, this guy is just poking everybody and people come over to try to get some fruit and they're, ah, you know. Is that what you want to be? Or you want to be this giant blossoming fruit tree that people can enjoy? Well, in verse 18, and having been set free from sin. This is radical freedom. It happened. You were released from the bondage of that slave owner. You were taken out of the claws of Satan. And you know, and th- this, is a, this is a miracle, guys, because we're in sinful bodies. We're in a sinful world that's telling us to do our sinful desires. We're, we are in a world where Satan is called the prince of the power of the air the spirit of this age. You know how much pressure we have against us? The odds are stacked against us to live a holy life, but yet we can do it. God living in us by the power of the spirit, we don't have to live in sin anymore. We have an option. And there he goes on in verse 18 saying, and you became, past tense again, slaves of righteousness. And Paul at this point going, Ah, this analogy is a little gross to me too. I I speak in human terms, verse 19, because of the weakness of your flesh. It's offensive. It's offensive to me too, sorry. But let me finish up this analogy. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to what? More lawlessness. Let me read this again. 
It starts out with uncleanness, and then it goes into just breaking the law, the law of God, leading to what? More lawlessness. Understand that. That's the way it works. It's not an isolated event. It doesn't have a single life of its own. It, it has life of its own. Sin leads to more sin. So now present your members as slaves of righteousness for what? Holiness. Verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. You, you, you couldn't become a slave of righteousness. It wasn't possible. And he goes back to verse 21. What fruit did you have then in the things which you are now ashamed? You know, I, I talk to guys who look back at 10 years of drinking and being a drunkard and slowly their brain cells are reconnecting. <laughs> and they're thinking about, oh, that thing at the bar, oh, that thing at the family reunion. Oh, my marriage is over. Oh, what I said to my kids. Oh, what I did at work. Oh, what I did on the freeway. Oh. It just it just sort of, as it starts seeing the picture from a sober standpoint, it's just like, man, I am so ashamed of so many things. That's just one area. I don't mean to pick on you if you're struggling with alcoholism, but it's an easy picture to see. But then he goes on and he says, for the end of those things is death. So you went from fruitlessness to shame to a separation from God. But in verse 22, but now having been set free from sin, hallelujah, having become slaves of God, eh, it's, again, the analogy is not perfect. Uh, we're not slaves of God in the same sense of one man enslaving another. But you have your fruit to holiness to the end everlasting life. I understand that when the Bible talks about everlasting life, it's not talking about a length. It's talking about a quality of substance. You, have you ever gone through a day where you, you, you kept meaning to do something you never did and the day's over and you just feel like the day lasted one second and, you know, nothing happened. It's sort of like if you sit down to dinner and it's just a table full of cotton candy. You know, it's, it's really good at point at the first, you know, it's all nice and pink and, you know, eating this cotton candy and it's disappearing and you're all gooey and still starving. You know, it, you, you, can, you can have different substance of things, right? And, and when you're in the Lord and you're being fruitful and your life is a blessing, there's an eternal quality. There's an eternal substance. What drew the multitude to Jesus? His incredible voice, his great intellect, his wealth beyond, it was this weightiness of him, this deep substance of Christ, this eternal nature of Christ. People felt the substance and were drawn to the substance. And this is what he's saying for all of us. There's this deep quality of life, this eternal life that we can begin living now, even in this world, in this body, the final verse, verse 23, for the wages of sin is what? Death. Ultimately, guys, it's going to take you way off the course into a complete broken relationship with God. But the gift of God is what? Eternal life. And that is now. How did we receive it? Going back to the beginning of the chapter, in Christ Jesus our Lord, through his death, through his resurrection. Here's a great verse to think about. First Timothy 6.12, the very far, first part of that verse, Paul tells young Timothy to fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life. Guys, fight sin. <laughs> fight uncleanness. Fight the lust of the flesh. Lay hold on eternal life. Amen? Lord, we thank you for your word and we ask in Jesus' name that you would put it deep into our hearts. That as we think about this passage, Lord, that it would be not just a sermon that we file away and go out the door and it doesn't affect us, that right now today, in this moment, that it would become the living word of God. If you're here right now and you are not a believer, somebody invited you today or you came because the Lord drew you. And you said, I'm not born again. I want to be born again. 
It's this simple. Ask him. It's a gift. Lord, I'm a sinner and I confess that I'm a sinner and I want to be set free from sin and to live a life in you, knowing you, walking with you, talking with you. Please, through the, your death and resurrection, by the blood that you shed on the cross, forgive me of my sin and give me eternal life right now. I lay my life to be your servant, <laughs> to be your child from this day forward. If you're here today as a believer and you're saying, I'm not that big fruitful tree I once was. <laughs> I'm shriveled up and I maybe got one fruited a year. Or maybe you're shriveled up and you haven't bore fruit in years. Maybe you're growing those stickers, <laughs> those thorns on the tree that once was a fruitful tree. And you realize it's real. Sin is real. Being fruitless is real. The pain and the difficulty of that is, is heavy and I want it to end. Just right now, in this moment, say, Lord, I once again give my life anew and afresh to you. I'm born again, but I am not surrendered in obedience to you. I've allowed that single sin to become a multitude of sin, and I'm enslaved. I'm not fruitful, but I surrender. I, 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 right now, this moment, Lord, I'm asking your grace to slam the door on those things. And you know what they are the Spirit speaking to you about? Shut them, Lord. Give me grace to shut them. Whether it's a process over months or years, but I want those shut, and I want at this point forward to get my eyes back on you. I've been born again to be your child, (laughs) to be in relationship with you. How foolish I was to give it away for the pleasures of the flesh. I surrender my life to you. Be the Lord of my life. Not just in theory, but in daily reality. I want to come back into that sweet fellowship with you. In Jesus' precious name. And Everybody said, amen, amen. If you prayed that prayer today, there's going to be pastors and leaders and their wives here to pray with you, lay hands on you, anoint you with oil, encourage you. May you have a tremendous, wonderful day in Jesus. Amen. Bye-bye.